Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's episode's a bittersweet one as I'm joined by Birdo for the final episode of our Alien series review with a discussion on Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant. Covenant picks up 10 years after Prometheus, and it follows a colonization mission that decides to alter its course to investigate a secret planet, seemingly ideal for colonization. But as we've come to learn over the course of the series, some things are too good to be true. Birdo, welcome back. Thanks for having me. No problem. This has uh, been quite the journey over these last six weeks of uh, revisiting the Alien series. Yeah, it's been a good one. Yeah, it's great to kind of... I've never watched them in chronological order. Yeah. I've always kind of just like jumped around or I've always been rewatching Alien a couple mm-hmm. of times a year or watching Prometheus when uh, you and I were capable of hanging out. Right. Uh, so it's been fun to kind of like, for me, revisiting ones that I've only seen once, like yeah. Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Alien Covenant. But for you, I mean, you mm-hmm. got to experience 2, 3, and 4, I think, for the first time. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I enjoyed them. It was good. It's good to, yeah, like you said, it was good to watch them all in chronological order. And it's such a, I guess in a movie, in the movie horror sense, it's kind of a, a great series. It's a, it's a classical series. So it's good to get to experience that. Yeah. And kind of just, it gives you more of a perspective of the evolution between each film in terms of whether it's like special effects or it's character development, or it's just the scale in general. It gives you a little more perspective. And for me, at least it gave me more appreciation because I think three and four were both movies that I'd only seen once for a reason initially. Yeah. They, I wasn't as keen on them as I was the first two films. Mm-hmm. But in watching them in order and in such a short period of time, I think I really got more of an appreciation for some of the evolutions in graphics, but mm-hmm. also just in their willingness to try things new, even if it wasn't necessarily like such a major shift from, let's say, the Alien series to Prometheus is like, a massive shift. Yeah. But then from like Alien 2 or Aliens to Alien 3, it's not a massive shift, but it's Mm -hmm. a a lot of like small nuanced tonal shifts, I think. Yeah. It seems like storytelling is so important, especially for aliens. Like in those times, their their graphics weren't well made, like CGI wasn't good. So they had to rely on a lot on practical and the settings and uh, the environment they had to develop. And the story itself is so important to really tell, really show off the story that uh, really Scott wanted to everybody to know and I think it's it kind of, you can kind of see the evolution of that the the more they film the different movies in different times you can see the addition of CGI and all these graphics that really help the movie out yeah so we're kind of uh, riding high off of our review of uh, our beloved Prometheus from last yeah. week really curious to hear what you thought about Covenant because I think just like you this was only my second time watching it mm. and I think it's pretty telling that you and I have rewatched Prometheus yeah. A handful of times, and yet we've only seen Covenant once. So right. what was your kind of overall impression of Covenant? Yeah, it was it was all right. It wasn't the best one. Um I think we we, we watched it together so through Zoom. So it was like we we're kind of talking about how it's like it feels to me it felt like they could have done better. Like you were telling me that Ridley Scott filmed it based on the critics that he got from fans that weren't happy with Prometheus. So it was kind of like his fan version of the movie and mm. you can kind of tell it wasn't really well executed and just it could have gone better route i guess yeah i mean we can get into that right now it's mm. this covenant feels very much like a reaction to the criticism that prometheus got right. and in fact like in my research i found that it was in that the sequel that they were originally going to do 
was removing Xen- we were even moving farther and farther away from the xenomorph mythology and it was more focusing on the engineers and kind of just fleshing out that species and the human interactions and David's exploration looking for them and researching them that was going to be the primary focus after the criticism that they got for Prometheus in that like oh where are the xenomorphs that kind of shit yeah. that like a certain part of the fandom was so divided over they decided like there's too much money going into these movies that they really couldn't risk alienating those fans a second time or angering them, which yeah. I don't know about you. I think that's a pretty clear cut instance where you should not be listening to what fandoms think they want. Right. Alien Covenant, I believe, only made a hundred something million dollars on top of its budget. Mm. So it was like 115 to make, and I think it made like 220 or something like that yeah. in terms of ticket sales and whatnot. But I think that shows that fans didn't necessarily show up for something that they wanted. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this idea that if they want this this particular thing and then the movie underperforms as much as it did, yeah, it's like, well, they gave us the thing that they wanted or they were given what they thought they wanted, yeah. which resulted in them not showing up. Right. Yeah, I felt like it would have been nice to see really Scott, his what his version of it would have been. Like we see they he had such a great talent in Alien. Then he goes on to produce Prometheus. And it would have been really cool to just kind of let him flow with that. Like coming off of Prometheus, which I thought was a great movie. Um, I would have loved to see how everything got tied up. And I think, to be honest with you, I thought that in this movie, they did a pretty good job in that sense. But I wish they had shown more um, more of what happened to Shaw. And like, you, know, you send me a, a clip of, I think it was some deleted scene where it's like they explain what happened to Shaw and, and the relationship with Shaw and David, that there were two survivors. And I just wish they'd explain a little more of that. But I think overall it was, it was all right. I just think it could have been better. And I would have loved to see more of really Scott's vision of what it could have been. Yeah. I think I compare it a lot to comic book fandoms and that mm. fans of comic books, it seems over the last five or some years become more and more vocal about being unhappy yeah. with the way that new creators come in and make stories with pre-existing characters. But at the end of the day, you have to be willing to make changes and you have to evolve on certain things. Otherwise, the types of stories that you tell are just going to be stagnant. And I think right. Covenant is very telling of that. And some people that I've talked to have been like, this movie is atrocious and this is terrible. And it's not a terrible movie. It's just incredibly underwhelming. And it's very much along the lines of what I would assume a modern alien movie would be in that there mm-hmm. aren't a lot of surprises and there right. is a lot of over-familiarity with not only the structure, but kind of just, well, no, with the structure. Just, yeah. I mean, there aren't any real surprises in the movie. Right. And it doesn't expand on the lore in an interesting way at all. Whereas mm-hmm. Prometheus introduces this ever-expanding lore. And even if in the end Prometheus brought up more questions than necessarily answered, mm-hmm. it feels like a movie that was being designed to tell a singular story. And that story would be continued in a sequel. So. Right for them to kind of abandon that that narrative that I right. think is pretty interesting, like you said, with Shaw. It's super disappointing that we find out what her fate is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll just get into it now. I purposefully did not talk about Shaw a lot in our Prometheus review because I knew I was going to bring it up for Covenant. Yeah. In that killing off her character and then essentially ending that storyline that was interesting mm-hmm. and replacing it with a lot of new mini storylines amongst the, a crew that overall, I don't think is very interesting. Yeah. Kind of just kills the narrative for me. Right. What did you think of them killing off Shaw? Yeah, I feel like they should have 
so that's that clip that the clip they showed me of her how what happened after after um prometheus i feel like they should have kept that in the movie i would have loved to see i would have loved to see how like because the whole time i was watching i was like so what really happened to her and obviously later on we find out what happened to her but like i just wish i would have seen it i think especially in that and there's a clip where david goes back to explaining walter what how it came about i think or he explained mm -hmm. walter or the captain um about what happened when they got to that to that planet and it's like in that clip i wish they should have just had the whole thing of just showing them what how did shock came about and what happened to her you can tell how messy the production of this movie was or that they mm -hmm. made a conscious decision to listen more to fandom yeah. in terms of where to steer the narrative just because of there's a lot of like supplemental material like the clip you talked about I don't even think it's, I think it is literally like a major deleted scene from that narrative Yeah, that they decided to take out and it was only released online. The decision to cut that, I think, is just to appease fans. Like, yeah. they're just completely removing Shaw from the story. And this is something that you would see online. And even the Last Supper scene that I sent you, I believe mm -hmm. I sent it to you. Yeah. But it's this basically like a five minute prologue to the story mm -hmm. in where it's the crew before they go into cryo sleep yeah. and you see like James Franco's cameo that's yeah. <laughs> all of 30 seconds long, which we'll get into in a minute. But I think that scene again should have been in the actual mm -hmm. movie. And they used clips from that supper scene in the trailer and the marketing for the movie. And so to cut that segment that does such a good job of kind of establishing the relationship between these characters and yeah. showing like they are friendly with coworkers or whatnot mm -hmm. with one another. And then they just cut that out. It just, I don't know. It, it seems like such a missed opportunity to help establish and to portray these characters as likable, as friendly as like communal coworkers right. or colonize, colonizers together. Yeah, I feel like I would have been okay if the movie was a little longer, but had they added those clips, it would have kind of tied everything. Like it would explain, I feel like that clip with the, with the crew would explain more of their relationship. And then that clip with Shaw, it would have really kind of like wrapped up the Prometheus world, like the Prometheus movie. It would have kind of came to a close and it's like, well, this is what happens afterwards. And I felt like since they didn't add that in the movie, it, to me, it felt like it was kind of its own separate identity. There was no mm -hmm. connection between Prometheus other than David, which is the only one that survives. Right. And it's like, other than that, there's like no connection to Prometheus. It's like they basically found this world and they could just show up and they found that there's an android living there already. Like, I don't know. To me, it just seems very distant to Prometheus. The fact that they didn't, they didn't include the explanation of Shaw in there or what happened to her. Yeah. And it feels very deliberate. Like it's severing, I mean, not to, not to go back to the, uh, the C-section umbilical cord yeah. rip from uh, Prometheus, but it really does feel like the creative team here and Ridley Scott primarily is kind of like ripping that umbilical cord attachment to Prometheus and that right. they completely separate it to the point that they show us what David did to Shaw and decapitating her and ripping her face off and all this horrific shit. And it's like, yeah. I get the alien, what separates it from a lot of other sci-fi mm -hmm. series is how dark the universe is. Yeah. But to take this character that is pretty, pretty much drives the film that preceded this one. Yeah. And then to kind of like snuff out this bright, like her character is notable because she's this kind of like bright light in this very nihilistic dark universe and to snuff that light out in such an aggressive manner and to not replace it or to even explain it in much depth in the actual movie that we got was like super disappointing and kind of like a slap in the face for me, at least because that character we were so invested in. And then they handle her death in such a dismissive way that it feels like it was just to appease fans 
with the wrong fans rather that were like, oh, Prometheus Shaw, like, I don't care. I want to forget all about that. And it's like, well, a lot of us really dug that. And it sounds like there would have been a more interesting route to go with that. But I mean, in moving off of Shaw, what did you kind of think of the rest of the crew? Because other than Walter, who is like the upgraded version of David, Mm -hmm. who's the new kind of like custodian of the Covenant ship and the crew, like we get a whole new cast of people. Yeah, I really, I really like this crew. It, it really made me feel like it had that same bond of the original Alien. Like they were very tight as a tight group. And I know they had different, there's, they're on different missions, but compared to the original Alien, but I really liked the bond between them. They were very close. They were mostly couples because they were obviously migrating to a new planet, starting a new life, which made sense. But I really liked the, 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 the bond that they had. I just wasn't a fan of the captain. He, was yeah. just, he just came up, rubbed me as the wrong wrong kind of guy to have his leadership. Yeah, Captain Orem, who's played by Billy Crudup, uh, yeah. he becomes captain because James Franco, who is uh, the spouse of Daniels, who's played by Catherine Waterstone, uh, Waterston, is mm. killed basically in the cryosleep. Like his pod malfunctions when the ship basically stops in orbit unexpectedly. There's a solar flare. There's some type of pulse that mm-hmm. basically knocks out a bunch of the um, colonist pods and kills yeah. a couple of colonists. And then it also causes the ship to, to stop, which then they pick up that distress signal that leads them to the new planet that they're going to investigate. But yeah, he's yeah he's not great. And no. I get that he is supposed to be this person that is the last minute captain because he's mm-hmm. the second in command after James Franco who dies. Yeah. But he just doesn't even really come into his role as being captain you know what i mean like if he's presented initially as being unsure of himself he is not the best candidate for being a captain and like the crew doesn't even listen to him right he says like don't have a eulogy basically Mm -hmm. for this guy that died we have to get work done first yeah and then he never grows into the role right and if anything he just becomes dumber and dumber the longer it goes on yeah that he gets led down to that basement eventually and becomes a face hugger uh Mm -hmm. host yeah, and it's just like he is really just that character that gets on your nerves the entire time he's alive. Right. Yeah. And again, going back to that that clip that they took out with the with, when we first meet the crew, I feel like even just seeing that moment where you see James Franco awake and he's talking to the crew, it seems like he's such a likable captain. And then in the background, you kind of see that this guy Orem, he's kind of like he's like the next in command, but mm-hmm. like nobody really cares about him. You see that there's right. like a distance between him and the crew um, or him and the, and the crew. And then it's like, he's such a likable guy. Uh, James Franco and uh, his character is <clears throat> so likable that when he dies, it's kind of like the whole spirit of the crew kind of went down. And I wish we'd have seen that. We, I wish we'd have seen that in the movie. Cause it would have explained a lot of like the relationship between Orem and the rest of the crew. And it would have kind of brought everything like rounded everything, you know, it would have helped a lot to explain that relationship because it just seems like, Orem is just such a weird dude. Like he just doesn't belong. Like he's a, I think he's a, almost like a religious figure. Like he's very religious about things, having faith. He talks a lot about that. And to me, it was like, cool. Yeah. I guess you need the one guy that's carrying on some kind of culture, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like his relationship just seems like he's not wanted in that role. Um, And I feel like had they shown that clip that was removed, that would have kind of helped to kind of bring everything together. Yeah, that Last Supper scene that they cut really adds a lot of mm-hmm. depth and it gives more weight to when they fu- James Franco dies. Like, right. it's very sudden in the film. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't 
doesn't affect me much because I never right. knew this character. And even in seeing him for that first 30 seconds that he's in that clip that was cut, it's like he see everybody around him likes him. Right. They're joking around and whatnot. And then like we learn that he's sick. He has like a cold or a yeah. fever or something. And just a little bit uh, moment like that, it establishes he's well-liked. His yeah. crew respects him. And we are a little bit sympathetic, like it sucks, he's sick. Right. And he's going into cryosleep. It's not the most mm -hmm. ideal situation. So it adds a little bit of emotional weight to his death. And you would actually care more if you had seen that. So right. it's not a long clip. And yet it would be so impactful in providing yeah. more background more on these characters. I think it and, been, yeah. yeah, it would have been more valuable. And I mean, especially on Orem, mm -hmm. just knowing ahead of time what he is like. Yeah would make him even that much more a complicated figure to get behind ever. Yeah. Because in not seeing that dinner scene, it feels kind of aggressive how anti him the entire crew is. Yeah. And we haven't been given many examples of why they should feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think even in that brief clip, it does a fantastic job of showing why he is so at odds with the rest of the crew. And right. it just feels more organic in that regard, I think. Right. Yeah. Like you, that, that was a good point. You just said like, I wish we'd have known why they don't like him. Like why they don't, there's like, there's no, like there's, they don't really say a reason that they don't like him. I know like the only, the only sense I get, he wants to be very in control, I guess. And that's not mm. the kind of crew that wants that kind of leadership, I guess. That's the only way I could see it. But other than that, they don't really explain why they're not a fan of him being captain or taking over because they could have, they could have just gave it to Daniels, who was the, who was the wife of the captain or James Frankel, the role he played. But yeah, I don't know. I wish they explained more of that. Yeah, and also, if you haven't seen the supper scene, he brings up his faith in mm. the actual film, but that that's never... he. It's almost presented like that's the crew being prejudiced towards the one religious person on the ship, when that's not the case at all. And we know is that right. he's this kind of like try-hard that's, like you said, basically, he's like a weirdo. Mm -hmm. And even when the captain is alive, he's trying to... He's basically like the brown nose of the captain, like, the right. captain can't be there and he wanted to perform some kind of speech or he wanted to cut Daniels off from giving a speech right? almost. And his wife has to like keep reeling him back in. Yeah. Speaking of wife, what did you think of the fact that this colony mission is all couples? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It was different for sure. I mean, I could see where he was, where they were going because they were find, trying to find a planet where there was life and they wanted to start their own thing, you know, have kids, which made sense. For, I guess the story, but it was definitely different from the world of Alien for sure. This is the first time we ever get to see such thing, at least for me, and I've noticed it was different. You know, I get what they were going for, but logically, it doesn't make much sense to have people that are so heavily invested in one another that mm -hmm. if you're, I think we find out that they're so far in a deep space that the colonies or Earth won't receive a message from the Covenant for like a year and a half or something. Yeah. That's how long it takes messages to travel between space. And so this idea that you're all the way out in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. and if a trouble arises and you have to pick between a spouse and a crew member, who are right. you more likely to pick? So the idea, and we even see it with Tennessee, who's played by Danny yeah. McBride and his wife, they get separated. And then Danny McBride starts doing all of these drastic ass decisions mm -hmm. and maneuvers with the Covenant ship, endangering potentially 2000 colonists. And yet it's just so he can try to save his wife. And it's like, sure. Yeah. It might be relatable right. to people that are married and have spouses. Like I would do anything to save them, that kind of right. thing. But from a 
company standpoint, like Whalen Utani has invested how many trillions of dollars into yet another expedition. And it's right. like, wouldn't you want a crew full of people that are no. more dedicated to the mission than having the potential moral conflictions of like having your wife there, or having your spouse there. Right. It just felt very illogical to me in a way that it didn't, it wasn't like so distracting that I was super caught up on it the whole mm-hmm. movie. But at the same time, I was just like, why would anybody allow this to happen? Cause this is such a foreseeable situation right. where a situation could drive somebody to be more invested in their spouse than the company. Right. And we also get to see when shit hits the fan in the movie, like they, they went from being so calm to instantly panicking and it's like certain people's partners die and they're like freaking out. They're basically not thinking rationally. They're mm-hmm. really invested. Like the fact that they they're, they just witnessed their partner die, you really get to see them break apart. Like they basically fall apart and yeah. like there's no, their rational thinking kind of goes out the window. Now they're, they're reacting emotionally and it just seems very like it just to be a, I feel like for Waylon is probably one of the worst investment you could do. <laughs> it's to send right. couples in a mission where you don't know where they're going. And I know that you're trying to find a certain, like they had mapped already a place that was safe to start colonization. But at the same time, you got to really think about it. It's like, like you were saying, like if, if their partner was dying and they had a choice between their partner and a coworker or, a, or what, another person, they would obviously pick their partner. So there's right. no, like there's no logic in there. Like they just kind of, they're reacting based on emotion and we get to see that in the movie when things hit the fan. Yeah. So the film opens up with an inch, like we of course get our favorite uh, performance from Prometheus returning, even though we didn't get Shaw, we get Fassbender returns as David. And we get that interesting flashback before the Prometheus even Mm -hmm. occurs. And it's David being meeting Peter Whelan for the first time. And it's basically David's birth. Mm -hmm. They even made a commercial for the film that was, I don't know if you watched it. I think I might have forgot to send it to you, but it's all about David being woken up basically and created. And it's like the technicians come in and they're fixing him up and they're getting him calibrated. And then he's sitting in like a room with potential buyers and the buyers are like feeling out his features and having conversations with him in a handler like they're about to sell him. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. And again, that's a scene that I think would have added a little more context to certain Mm -hmm. things, but they get, we get this introduction between David and Peter Wayland. That interaction, I think, would have served really well in Prometheus instead of in Covenant. Because yeah. going into Covenant, we know that David is a bad guy. Even right. if we don't necessarily know he's going to be in the movie because we meet Walter before we see David again. Right. At the same time, though, in that interaction, it's the basis for why David is so evil. And right. why his drive is to do the things that he does in Prometheus where... He slips the black goo into Holloway's drink, which eventually triggers the entire thing. And in yeah. that, he learns from Peter Wayland that um, he can never create life, basically. Right. And that is what incentivizes him, basically, to do all this evil shit. So he can, his new mission in life is to create something. Yeah. And that creating thing is not necessarily, obviously, going to be human life or android life, but just mm-hmm. life in general. And that we see how fucking twisted and manipulated that gets in covenant yeah i wish yeah i wish that that intro scene would have been like it it would have been placed later on in prometheus where we get to kind of know more of david and then we get like a flashback of like off the bat he was just kind of weird like he was more human than robot almost like in the sense Mm -hmm. that he was very methodical about things that he did and and we really get to see that that scene was like for me it was like you can see how evil he was like you could say like he when he's talking to peter he's like well, you die and I don't. And I was like, shit, like this guy is, he's, he's on a mission. Like you can tell that he's like, 
he has an advantage over human beings that he doesn't die. And although he can't create any life, he still won't like, he can just do whatever he wants because he won't die. Um, and yeah, I wish they would have, yeah, that was kind of a weird placement. Like, yeah, we, we don't really get much of a background story on David, but I felt like that scene, that intro scene should have been towards or near the end of Prometheus because it could have wrapped up that whole character. And then it would have just gone straight. Like the movie would have started off straight with Walter in the ship. And then I would have been totally fine because we kind of know what David is all about. Right. And yeah, again, it seems like an interesting placement or a misplaced placement because Mm -hmm. they spend so much time trying to distance the movie from Prometheus. And yet you start Covenant with a callback to a character from Prometheus that's not in Covenant. Right. Which is Peter Whalen because he obviously dies at the end of Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Um, I did like, though, that we get a different version of the android. Yeah. And they avoid doing the whole secretive thing of like, he's a bad guy. And we actually just get a straight up good Android for a change. Mm, yeah. Because that could have been very kind of just, again, returning to the well, as it were. Yeah, repetitive. Which I'm surprised they didn't, given that the whole movie is structured around giving fans supposedly what they want in a mm. sequel, which yeah. is apparently just more of the same. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like the fact that they had a good Android and it kind of, at the same time, they it's like, it could have all, it could have gone repetitive, mm-hmm. but the fact that he was good guy and he kind of had more control, I guess he was a, he was a better version of David. Um, like in the sense that he's more, he's there just to help out the crew and not to lead the crew into somewhere else. Um, it really kind of helped the whole story and everything. I, I enjoyed Walter. I think, I mean, Michael Fassman did an amazing job at both roles, David and Walter. Um, and I think definitely he's the top performer out of all the, all this crew. Definitely, because this crew doesn't really have any big name actors other than James Franco, who's there for two seconds <laughs> yeah. that we get to see. But yeah, I think his performance overall was great. Yeah, I think definitely Fassbender, again, kind of just gives it his all. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to see him play a doppelganger, essentially, of himself, yeah. but a completely different personality. And it shows we learn a lot about the progressions in the androids since. Right. Uh, the David model had been built, mm-hmm. which I think at this point is like 20 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting seeing when David and Walter meet and Walter starts talking about how the David model scares humanity. And that's right. why they kind of made these alterations to him because David's model essentially just thinks too much for himself and starts right. forming feelings for people and his own independent opinions that aren't manipulated by his creators, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too much human, too much human reaction. I guess it seems like he's came off as being. They made him way too much humor, human-like. Mm-hmm. That kind of yeah. kind of took over. Yeah, and I think in addition to Fassbender, somebody that really surprised me in terms of just their the acting job that they did in Covenant was Danny McBride. Who, I mean, I so yeah. I think everybody it's safe to say associates him with comedies, mm-hmm. whether it's Eastbound and Down or one of the various series or movies that he's done. And yet in this, he very much plays against type in a way that's nice to see. Like his character has humor, but it's a very different brand of humor for him. Yeah. Whereas he's used to being kind of like the bolsterous loud mouth guy that just says like vulgar things for the sake of saying them. Mm -hmm. But in this, like he has very kind of relatable humor. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, he does a lot of really great drama acting, I think, especially when he learns about the fate of his wife and just... You can, he seems like he's somebody that really bought into the role in a way that I don't think I'd seen him do before. 
Yeah, no, he, I think he definitely, he was probably the second best standout performer for me at least because I was not expecting um, that from him, from a comedian, I guess. I'm, I've only known him as a comedian. So um, from that role, I think him, I feel stepping out of his comfort zone, he did an amazing job at bringing that seriousness and drama. Although, I mean, he has a little hint of humor in there, but but like that's just, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not great. overbearing. No, yeah, it's a great balance for him. And the fact that he was able to perform and like, like you said, like the scene where he finds out his wife died, like that performance really, I don't know, to me, it's so like he really was feeling pain for her. Like it, he did a great job at basically sharing that the fact that he was in pain and I thought his performance was great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we've been kind of down on the film so far, yeah. but I think something that I was pleasantly surprised to learn, which you and I had talked about a little bit before was this idea that the movie again has this dedication to practical effects. Mm -hmm. And that's something that carries over from Prometheus that I'm really glad that they did because if they had not, uh, I probably would have (laughs) even been a little rougher on this. So you and I were talking and we were surprised to learn that they rebuilt all the sets from Prometheus. Mm. I thought, I think originally you and I had talked and we thought that they had saved the sets or that they filmed a lot of footage and they used that footage in Prometheus or in Covenant. Uh, like a lot of the ship uh, interior and exterior yeah. shots, but they rebuilt all of that practical for Covenant. That's and crazy. I mean, Ridley Scott again comes back and storyboards the entire thing. So mm-hmm. it kind of just, again, that return dedication to making it as believable of a space as it is. Yeah. And I think while we weren't necessarily blown away by a lot of the performances at the same time, they're still feel present in the role and it feels like a lived in space in a way that yeah. I think eludes a lot of super CG heavy sci-fi movies. Yeah, it definitely did a great job in 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 really showing off the ship. Like we get to see like when uh, Walter's walking through, we get to see a lot of the ship and we have, there's new additions where they have all the uh, colonists hanging. And I think that was pretty cool to see that like these like pods of the, where the colonists sleep and it's it's really awesome to see and there's you can just see all the way down the hall and it's like packed with just colonies colonists hanging there and yeah i think they did an amazing job I and mean, the fact that they had to they took the time to redo rebuild everything which is kind of mm-hmm. crazy like it's an, an additional work like i mean i i would have been totally fine had they kind of moderate like the put little touches on the old stuff and but the fact that they rebuilt everything it, it just goes to show his dedication to really wanting to do the best that he could and to yeah, so satisfy people, I guess. I watched a uh, like a short clip from. Do you remember that show, Mythbusters? Mm, yeah, yeah. So the guy Adam Savage that was on that show has a new show which is called Tested, and he did a set visit, basically, and showed them recreating the oh, uh, space jockey terminal. Yeah, yeah. That and like the throne room and all of these different sets, and it was it really did blow me away because it was just almost exactly the same. And That's I would assume crazy, for yeah. the most part it was the same, but just to see them be able to recreate such specific details mm-hmm. to like the T essentially, yeah. like that just blew me away. And it really helps again, facilitate that even though this is, I would say essentially an independent movie from Prometheus. Yeah. And while obviously this is a sequel to Prometheus and it has David returning, this movie is not very similar to it. But at right. least it still evokes that alien tone mm-hmm. and that alien world in a really interesting way that I think expands more in the sense that like in Prometheus, we were a big fan of the cinematography yeah, and kind of just the wide open areas and the balancing between 
these tight claustrophobic areas and then these like large luscious shots of just kind of like vegetation and yeah. like Nat Geo style. Right. Yeah, they. I think they did a great job at that too. Like the cinematography also is pretty cool. How I mean, I think most of it at this point is probably CGI. But like when they find the uh, city, or I guess the city where David is, um, just like to put in perspective of how huge it was. Like you see them running through like the main part of the city, and it's like humongous. And it's like mm-hmm. it's so cool to see that they kind of were able to bring this this kind of city to life and i'm not i'm i'm assuming that was all cgi because it was just way too big and they wouldn't have enough room to do it yeah so for that scene in particular they had they went to i believe australia and they filmed in like a water reservoir that was this that was like 800 feet long or 800 yards long excuse me and so part of it was practical where there's like a walkway especially like the staircase going into the city or Mm -hmm. leading into the city that was all practical but then in the background for depth of field, they had obviously uh, yeah. green screen for that. Right. But at the same time, just in having that slice of a practical on set on location, it really does a great job of just making you feel involved in that scene in a way that, frankly, again, like my example is always coming back to like Marvel movies, which I think are like mm. 80% CG at this point. Like, I don't feel very involved in most of those movies. Right. It's kind of something I sit back and I enjoy for what it is. Mm-hmm. But in this movie and even in Prometheus, like you notice that detail and you get engaged with the film in a way that I don't necessarily think a lot of movies do because again, Ridley Scott is pushing for this return to practical effects and you use CG on the rough edges of whatever you're shooting, right. but it's not an over-reliance on CG that really takes you out of the experience. Yeah, I think that's what I like about at least the movies I've seen from Ridley Scott that he does a great job at like really balancing the practical with the CG, at least as of reason. And like, I, I wish he'd make more movies where he does that. Cause I think he does such a great job at that and really sells you on the set and like where the environment that the character is in. I think he does a great job at it. And it, it really adds to me. It adds, cause I'm, I, I like, I like seeing things. I'm a visual person. So it's like, for me, it really helps me. That's, I think that's one of the things that I love about Prometheus is a very visual movie. And this, mm-hmm. they also do a great job in, in Covenant too, that there's a lot of things where it's like kind of crazy to see little details of like when we find David's David's cave and there's like little things like, for example, the light, it's a walk-in light. And I thought that was so cool. Like every yeah. time he walks into a room, this thing lights up and it's like just little things like that and all the, like, the little details that they have in his office and his like um, labs. I think it's awesome. Yeah, for that set, especially that David's lab, um, there's like part pieces of parchment and everything that are in there, like yeah. diagrams of xenomorphs, uh, failed xenomorph clones, and then facehuggers, and then there's all yeah. these dissected animals and whatnot. And there's like rolled up pieces of parchment, and on that show, Tested, he walks through that set, and he yeah. like just was picking things off the wall and unrolled them, and there's actual like drawings That's so on awesome. pieces of paper that you don't see them in the movie because they're mm-hmm. rolled up. But again, it kind of just speaks to this dedication to making the space as immersive as possible. Yeah. Yeah. In I a think way that is just, again, it's a minute detail, but it goes so far in the lengths of making you more engrossed into this environment. Yeah. I feel like you, you are more invested into like the environment and the character. And you really feel for like when things go wrong with the character, like you really feel like, yeah, the environment has this, a lot to do with it, especially when they're in an unknown environment, you know, like the character's not used to being in, in a different planet and they're just finding out new things about it. And I think overall, really Scott does a great job at that and really selling you um, 
the the environment that the character is being put on and the amount of pressure of being in a new place that he hasn't experienced before. Yeah, and I really enjoy the balance that they strike between these large environments. Again, you have mm-hmm. this, I believe they filmed in New Zealand, like when the ship touches down, the dropship, yeah. and they're walking through the water and the woods and all that. That was all filmed in New Zealand and really just, again, capture. it's kind of this wondrous planet that yeah. is actually like a haunted house in a lot of ways yeah. where it's like you love getting there but then as soon as you're inside like all hell breaks loose and these mm. horrible monsters prey on you um i think that's a really good contrast and balance again of this gorgeous world that's filled with such horrors that prometheus did so well um a little more here than in prometheus because this is kind of like a more like woodland lush yeah. vegetation and all right. that which really helps the uh presentation another example of this is like a mi- minor nitpick thing that i think one of my favorite lines from the trailer for the movie that was cut out of the final movie is when they're walking through the woods mm. and th- just before they find the uh juggernaut ship yeah and daniel stops the group and she says do you hear that and they're like hear what and oh, she's yeah. like nothing and she kind of talks about how Oh, they, I don't hear. We can't hear any birds. We don't hear any animals. There's yeah. nothing. I think that was cut out of the final movie, but it was in the trailer. But anyways, that line was so pivotal in setting the overall mood yeah. of the trailer and selling us on this. This is like a barren world. It's a beautiful world, but it's a barren world, and there's lots of clues as to what could have gone wrong here. Right. We just don't see them for what they are. Like they find wheat that has been yeah. planted, but it's like, who planted it? And right. I don't see that immediately. There's no animals or anything like that. Why are there no animals in this planet? And yeah. all these different questions that never really get answered in a way that mm-hmm. I think it sets up for something more interesting than what it actually ends up being. Yeah. No, I think I think that quote is in the uh it's in the movie. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they were climbing and then you see I think you see the trees already broken and then the it, the camera zooms out and you see the landscape and she's like what like you do you hear that there's nothing there's no animal yeah that was definitely part of the movie but um okay yeah uh, it was kind of yeah like you were explaining like yeah it's kind of crazy to see like you know they they notice like there's human civilization but there's nothing alive in the like in this world like they showed up and it's like well yeah we found there's we got notice that there's human or some kind of living thing here but like yeah there's no sign of like i guess there's signs of it because they find wheat but like at the same time, there's no sound. There's nothing. It seems like the planet is in pause almost. Going off of that, what did you think of the flashback sequence? Because it doesn't talk about David and Shaw, what happened in between in the actual movie, really. Mm. You get David's yeah. kind of lie trying to explain away why she isn't there. But what did you think of the flashback that shows the juggernaut ship returning to the engineers, one of their homeworlds or one of their planets? Mm-hmm. And then David decides basically to unleash the black goo and kill everybody. Right. Yeah, I feel so again. Like that was a cool scene. I I like the fact that he had a flashback, but I wish they would have explained, like more, not the relationship with Shaw, but like why, like, like I understand he wanted to create a life, but it's like it seemed so abruptly that he just decided to drop all these bombs. Like he knew that there was like life and there was like some kind of virus in these jars, but it's like why just all of a sudden? Like, I wish they would explain it why. Like I understand he wanted to create life, but he's like. It just seemed to me very suddenly that he's like, I'm just going to kill off this whole species. Instead of going down, meeting, interacting with them, he just kind of decided just to bomb the whole planet in a sense and like just wipe everything out. Like it just to me, it just seems so abruptly, like there's no explanation to it. Also, his entire reason for what he's doing to the crew of the Covenant when they arrive there is that 
he wants more test subjects. Right. So this idea that he lands on a planet and then kills all of these potential test subjects. Yeah. There was no way for him to know that the Covenant was going to show up or that other people would ever show up. Mm. So his research is essentially halted. Right. So to be on a planet that has seemingly endless amounts of test subjects and then to kill them all right off the bat, I don't know. That's one of those little story details that kind of stands out to me as being messy. I think it's cool that we get to see what the engineer's homeworld looks like when it's Mm -hmm. populated and when there's lots of people alive. Yeah. But then at the same time, I don't think they either didn't go far enough with it or they just didn't develop his thought process as well. Like we do get that moment early on in the film of him wanting to create life for himself. But at the same time, like you said, this idea for him to basically like at the blink of an eye, just kill an entire civilization. Right. Didn't really do much for me. Yeah, no, I wish, again, I wish they had had the whole clip where we get to see his relationship with Shaw once she revived him and once she put him together. And I kind of would have explained a little more, but to me, it just seems so abruptly to the fact that he wanted just to kill off this whole species because he wanted to see what he can get out of this virus. Like they, it yeah. could evolve. And it's just like, I don't know. It just seemed very, it was cool seeing to see that. But at the same time, it's like, there's no reason why he would have done that. He could have just gone down and kind of talked to them and then maybe somehow managed to like take one by one or something. And like, maybe he thought he was going to, he was going to get outnumbered or something, but I don't know. It just seemed very abruptly. Yeah. Definitely a scene that I think, um, had promise, but they didn't quite capitalize on it yeah. enough. Um, but let, you want to get into some favorite moments of the film? Yeah, yeah. So what was one of the moments of this movie that kind of stood out to you, all of our kind of criticisms aside? Uh, for me, I like the fact that, so it was the alien itself, like the xenomorphs, we get to see the the first time we see it, it, it comes out of um, one of the soldiers' bodies or one of the guys. Yeah, and it's kind of- Backburster yeah, scene. Yeah, and then so we get to see that and we get to see how it grows and it's weird shape. But then while I was watching the movie, you get to see that David has been testing on different things mm-hmm. and he eventually comes out with this thing where it's the face hugger. So it like, you kind of, I like the fact that we get to see the evolution of how it became about, like we get to see the, the first xenomorph we see, it just looked nothing like the one we're used to seeing. Yeah. But then like, there's like certain evolution where he, we get to see his lab. He has different kind of creatures and like, he tested the virus in different um, in different animals, and then he finally comes up with something that's in a giant egg, and we get no, we know that it's a face hugger. And like, I really like that whole sequence of like how it came about, um, like the fact that he run tests on different animals, different species, and he finally got to where we get to see the origin of the uh, xenomorph, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I like that they explored a little bit more. And I think that backburster scene is one of my favorite yeah. scenes, just how brutal it is. And it's a new version of, like, everybody assumes the chestburster, chestburster, it's coming yeah. out of your chest. But to see it kind of just, like, brutally rip through this guy's spine yeah. and then kind of just flop down on the floor and it's gruesome and bloody and all that, mm-hmm. like, I like the variation there. And it's a new, it's kind of like extending the savageness of this dark sci-fi world and yeah. like the things that are capable again it keeps you guessing mm-hmm. no matter even though this is the essentially the sixth film in the series yeah you still there's still surprises and they're still going to mm-hmm. gross you out and we see that even later when the security team gets attacked for the first time by i think i believe it's called a neomorph the white mm-hmm. xenomorph yeah, yeah when they get attacked one of the crew members husbands gets sick because mm-hmm. he uh, inhales the spore yeah. which i think is cool too that they expand the ways in which you can contract 
right. the virus basically, or the black goo mm-hmm. in that if you step on this plant, it releases a spore. And then if you breathe that in, or if it gets into your skin, yeah. the black goo basically mutates inside of you. But I like how the the husband of that guy that gets infected, it like comes out of his throat. Yeah. And it kind of just like, it's gross and it's disgusting. But again, it's surprising. There's right. something new there. And it's the same dedication of the savageness mm-hmm. of the world and like the punishment Ridley Scott deals with these people. But at the same time, it's very much the same kind of dedication to that thing. But yeah. I really like that scene, backburster scene, the the uh, the throat birth, as it yeah. were. I'm not a fan of the the way the neomorph looks. Yeah, like I think that given how strong of a practical approach the film has, mm-hmm. and they did use practical effects to a certain degree, I just don't like the CG polish that they gave that alien. Yeah, like it it looks too goofy to me. Yeah, it was definitely you can definitely tell CGI. You can tell it's like. I don't know. It just seems very fake CGI. Even when we get to see the first version of the actual xenomorph that comes mm-hmm. out of um, Orem's body, like, yeah. it like kind of comes alive and it raises its hand. It's like, you can tell that's CGI. And I understand, yeah. like, I feel like, I don't know. I think when was the film? 2014 or something like that? This movie? 2016 like maybe? 2016. Yeah. I feel like we, at that point we had a good CGI where you can kind of yeah. make it look more realistic. But I mean, other than that, I think the final version of this Xenomorph, I thought it looked great. Like at the end, yeah. the ending scene where he was chasing them down, I thought that was great. Like the CGI there, you can't even tell. Like for me, it seemed that final product was great. But other than that, like the first version and that little baby one was kind of weird. But I, like back to back to what you were saying though, to about like when it comes out of the mouth, like that was kind of cool to really see that there's dirt like each person is going to get a different effect. Like one of them sniffed it, the other one went into its ear. And like, I don't know, it seems like the virus reacts to different bodies and just the way it evolves out of it. It was kind mm-hmm. of cool. It was really cool to see that. Like, like I said, everybody gets a different kind of reaction of where it's going to come out. One of them from the back, one of them is going to throw it up. So right. at the end of the day, they all die, but it's kind of cool to see that evolve. There's a good amount of variation there. It never yeah. kind of becomes too stagnant. Um mm-hmm mentioning going off of what you mentioned about david and the xenomorphs like his relationship with them yeah that whole thing i thought was too weird Mm. and i get that like and this is even you and i've been playing uh the game alien isolation yeah in that the xenomorphs don't react to the androids obviously because they're not people right and so they just kind of look at them inspect them but then move along their way yeah whereas in this david has like a bond with the xenomorphs he's trying to teach them and Mm -hmm. harness their abilities and harness their just their drive. Right. And you see that in that when the chestburster comes out of Orem, David raises his arms and the little xenomorph raises like yeah. that whole thing was way too goofy, I thought. Right. And it like you said, it just kind of highlights the lackluster CGI that they apply mm-hmm. to those things. And while it might be a practical base and it's a little puppet or whatever, there's a certain kind of just like CG uh touch up that they give to everything yeah. that I think undoes a lot of the reasons why you have practical work in there yeah yeah to me that that scene where you get to see like the connection between the xenomorph and david it kind of reminded me of the uh the fourth alien with Mm -hmm. ripley when she kind of she's like basically becomes the mother of the queen yeah or like she has like a bond between the alien that was kind of that was kind of a weird moment for me i was like i understand that they're that the robots and I guess the xenomorph can sense when there's actual human or a beating heart, I guess. But it just like, yeah, that took me back to that fourth one, which I wasn't crazy about it. But 
um, just that relationship with Ripley and the alien. It was just kind of weird. Yeah. I think going back to what you were saying, though, about the Fulgrim Xenomorph, which we mm-hmm. get, that's the best the Xenomorph has ever looked, probably. Right, yeah. Um, and it really is just a very polished version of it that captures the ferocity and the quickness of them that mm-hmm. they tried to do in Alien 3. Yeah. But that the technique that they were using back then didn't work. And in this, mm-hmm. they've obviously perfected it a lot more. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, that like the Neomorph it has that same quickness and they did that same technique of having a green screen behind the practical yeah. uh, suit and whatnot. But for whatever reason, the Z- the Neomorph and the Xenomorph are filmed. It feels like they're filmed differently because one mm. looks really authentic and one looks goofy to me. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it has to do with the color. And so mm. one being white, it's going to show up differently than the one that's black. Yeah. I don't know, but for whatever reason, the Xenomorph, I have to assume they filmed it the same way, and yet it looks so much more. It looks uh, crisp. Yeah, it looks. Very yeah, it looks clean. crisp, and yeah. it looks clean, and like there's no rough edges on it. Yeah. Whereas the Neomorph, it's kind of just all rough edges, and I mean, I think it looks goofy to begin with that color palette. Yeah, I think I think it might be the color for me. It was I wasn't crazy about it, um, but it was kind of. I mean, for me, it was <clears throat> while watching the movie, it was kind of cool to see the evolution of different. Like I said before, like he tested on different things and you get to see how it changes and it evolves. And then it, it becomes like, almost like it, it like stands up when, when, when it kills the, uh, that girl who's like washing herself down and like in the, in the bathroom, I guess. And like, you get to see it standing up. And then when it talks to David, it's like standing up and like basically they're face to face. And it's kind of weird that it doesn't have a mouth until it opens its mouth. Like, like if it has his mouth closed, it looks like it's literally just a round shaped head. But then it opens yeah. his mouth and it's like has these crazy sharp teeth and its jaw opens up crazy wide. Um, it was kind of an interesting um, like concept for that. But overall, yeah, I think it might have a lot to do with the color. Like I think with white, it's probably easier to pick up on minor details. The, the black possibly could be easier to hide. Yeah, I guess also if it's white and it's a mostly dark film, it stands yeah, out a lot more than right. the black xenomorph, which makes it that much more creepy. Like that ties into the original film in that it was a super dark film. And when you have something that a creature that's stalking people that blends into the darkness, yeah. it's that sca- much scarier. But I will mm-hmm. say the one thing I like about the, uh, the Neomorphs is just how ferocious they are. Yeah. And when they attack the squad for the first time, like one of them uses its tail and starts stabbing people. And then it swings its tail and it like clean cuts off a guy's jaw oh, yeah. and his that jaw was... is just lying on the floor. Like that yeah. is a super brutal moment that again, mm-hmm. kind of just captures the deadliness of this creature in a way that I think is really, really good. Yeah. But then at the same time, overall, like I'm, it's just so distracting. I think how goofy the alien itself actually is. Yeah. I, I really liked the quickness and the fact that they're so deadly with their tail. Like they, I think this is probably this movie we get to see most of the them using the tail because I think mm-hmm. I don't think we re- we usually get to see them using killing people with their mouth but this is like we get really they really shows how deadly they are with their tail like they're poking especially when they when they fr- um, when it first comes out of the guy's back and the the girl gets stuck in the room with her uh, with mm-hmm. the alien or or the xenomorph thing and then like literally she's on the floor and he's like poking at it with its tail like that's all it knows how to do and I think I wish that they would have seen more of that being used as a xenomorph because i feel like it has such a long tail and a pointy end it's like it could be much more deadly than just using its mouth and we get to see that even um when it breaks into the ship and like the the girl's having sex with the guy in the bathtub and you get to see the tails kind of sliding under the tub or i guess like under 
under the glass. And it's like, that would have been kind of crazy to see them like kind of use that more as a weapon instead of just that would have been the most brutal kill. Yeah. If it had done what everybody assumes it does. Because when you see that tail slithering underneath them between their legs, like, yeah, you assume it's somebody's about to get impaled with that. And right. I mean, it's an R-rated movie and it's like so unforgiving yeah. in what it does to people. I don't know why they didn't just go with that. Because then they go with kind of the traditional kill of like spiking that guy in the back of the head with the teeth. Yeah. And I don't know. That would have been a much more memorable kill in my opinion. But yeah, um, I think one of my favorite sequences though in the entire movie is the spacewalk mm. at the end, basically where they are in the cargo bay yeah. and they're fighting that last xenomorph and then they open up the doors because they want to blow them out of the airlock. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I just love the way that that film is shot mm-hmm. or that scene is shot rather. And that when the doors open and we get into zero gravity, it just, the way that it's shot changes yeah. almost like the film style uh-huh. in that it's slow-mo and it, the sound design kicks in with your fo- hyper-focusing on their breathing, on mm-hmm. their panicking, on all these different things that the rest of the movie doesn't really do yeah. all that well. And I just love, obviously, like they skewer that thing onto the the uh, big truck, right. and then they push the truck out of the airlock, and then the thing just burns up in the atmosphere. Eventually, I would assume, but yeah. the just whole sequence and the way that that shot, I thought, was really remarkable. Yeah, it was cool to like really see how they really put time and dedication to being the fact that they are in space. So it's like when the window breaks, you can see the glass shattering. It was like floating in the air. That was kind of cool to really see that detail, that attention to detail that really made you feel like they were in space and now there's no gravity up here. And, and it's just like, everything was very quiet. Like, like yeah. what would you expect in, in space? Like you can, like you said, you can hear them breathing and you only hear the noise that they're hearing. So it's like them breathing yeah. and kind of communicating. But other than that, it's like very quiet. And it's, I, I, I thought that was a pretty cool scene myself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think for me, one of my favorite moments is the last few moments of the movie where oh, yeah. there's that, I mean, it's the realization to back up a little bit. There's like that fight between David and Walter when we realize that David is bad mm. and he basically just wants to use the remaining crew of the Covenant as test subjects. Um, and then there's the whole like rescue sequence where Tennessee comes down, picks him up on the cruiser. There's a xenomorph on there and they end up killing him. But then in the end, we realize that David has killed Walter and replaced him on the ship. Yeah. And so he's tucking everybody into their cryo sleep. And yet the last thing Daniel says before she goes out is... Uh, will you help me build my cabin? Which is yeah. something that she mentions early in the movie that's a call back to what her and James Franco wanted to do when they got to their final destination together. Mm-hmm. And when she says that, David, who she thinks is Walter, just kind of looks at her and he's like, yeah. I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. Right. And then she realizes who he actually is. And David's last words to her are like, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. Yeah. Um, and I just love that moment because it's so sinister in... Before she goes in for the deep sleep, yeah, she realizes with horror, like who is in charge of all the surviving colonists and who is in charge of the covenant from now on. Yeah, um, and there's such an ambiguous open-endedness to it that mm-hmm. the film ends that I really think is great in terms of. I don't think we're going to get a sequel for a while, but yeah. it's open-ended enough that there's a certain direction that the narrative can go in focusing on David and what he chooses to do with the colonists, mm-hmm. and then we see also that he smuggled eggs onto the covenant, yeah. which he like vomits out and puts them right. into cryo sleep himself. Yeah. That was, a, that was a weird moment. It reminded me, I was telling you, like, it reminded me of my, when my cats throw up, <laughs> he was just like, yeah. he was like, oh, oh, he's making just like this weird thing. But yeah, it was, that was, that was a cool scene. That was, 
definitely one of those cool plot twists um, that at first time watching, I would have expected it because mm-hmm. he really looks exactly like Walter. But then you realize that it's like at the end, it's like, oh shit, it's David. But I, like just to go back with that fighting scene with Walter, um, the scariest moment is when he first stabs Walter in the neck and he like flinches. Oh, that yeah, actually yeah. freaked me out for a second because I was like, yeah. I wasn't expecting it. He does it so quick. He stabs him in the neck and like Walter kind of like snaps. I guess he hits like the right court on his neck the or something. The reset button or something? Yeah. And he like freaks out and his eyes go white and he just falls on the floor. That like freaked me out the first time I, I saw I forgot it. that scene too where he impales his neck with the uh, with the flute. Yeah. That was yeah. that was a creepy scene. But um, yeah, overall I thought that that ending scene was really cool and it definitely left kind of an open door to like take it wherever they want to or if really Scott wants to take over and try doing his version of what would happen after. I think it would have been cool but since you mentioned it, do you think Ridley Scott should come back and do the third film? Or do you think it's time to give up the reins of Alien to somebody else? For me, I think, I think Ridley Scott should do it personally because it's his creation. And I want to see where he wants to go with it. Like, I feel like I hope that if he does do another one, that he does it based on what he wants to do and not what the, he wants the fans to see. Like, not the, to take the fans' opinion out of it and just does, yeah. do what he wants to what he was originally planning on doing. I think if anybody I feel like would be dedicated to doing such a movie, it would be Ridley Scott. Cause I feel like he, he's so good at paying attention to small details. And he has this kind of just, a, I feel like just the way his mind processes things. I'm assuming that's like in an alien world, like he's so familiar with it that I think he would, he could take it wherever he wants to. And I think it'd be great. But I don't, I don't know who else could have taken over. I don't I'm know. so conflicted on it because I agree to a certain extent that like it would be fantastic to see him get to tell a continuation of the engineer's story that he actually yeah. wants to tell and to say fuck the fans and completely disregard what the like. It's probably just a vocal minority like it always is mm-hmm. with fandoms. But I just I can't see him getting in giving up the time investment and getting the capital together again for a film that has the same level of resources that Prometheus and Covenant had, especially after Covenant kind of underperformed. Not kind of, it did underperform. Mm -hmm. Um, And also at one point they were floating this idea that they were going to do a new Alien movie that was picking up after Aliens. Yeah. And it was about Ripley, Newt, and Hicks, Mm -hmm. which they've scrapped, I believe. I'm pretty sure they've scrapped that. But the director that they'd attached to it was Neil Blomkamp, who did District 9. Oh. And Elysium and yeah, Chappie yeah, yeah. and all those movies. Um, yeah. And I think that he would be perfect mm, yeah. for picking up the reins. Even if I would obviously very much want Ridley Scott to be involved as a producer and to yeah. definitely be the one that is helping with the storyboarding and all these different things that he has proven have made these movies significant. Even if yeah. I'm underwhelmed by Covenant. I think there's definitely certain things that he did that he does better than other sci-fi movies that try to be somewhat similar to it. But at the same time, Blomkamp has such a new and fresh like sci-fi horror voice. Yeah. And he hasn't made a movie since Elysium, but he was doing like his uh, studio, I believe it's called Oats Studio, has been making these shorts. I think it was like last year or two years ago. They released a whole bunch of these different shorts, which are like proof of concepts. They were like 20-minute yeah. mini-movies, mm-hmm. basically. And each one of them tells a unique, varied story that is horror-oriented and it's technology-oriented. So there was one called Zygote, which is like the thing almost. It's this blob that every time it comes across a body, it eats the body 
And then the the body is just like a bunch of arms and a bunch of legs. And it has the identity then of all these different people it kills. And it's chasing Dakota Fanning through this Arctic base. And it's really cool and unique and fucked up and fresh. And so for somebody that has that much of an original voice, I think he could really take this franchise in an interesting direction and do cool, unique things with it. Um, Yeah. Granted, I don't know about his ability to tell a super compelling 90-minute, two-hour narrative. Yeah. But it would give the series that spark that I think Covenant was sorely missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think now that I think about it, like he has a pretty good um, background on like what an alien space world would look like or like Mm -hmm. a ship-wise. Like watching District 9, now that I think about it, he kind of has like that familiar, like he's, he's aware of what a ship would look like. And I think him... If if him and Ridley Scott work together, I think they could do pretty pretty good um, sequel or sequel to this movie or just an alien series in general. I think that would be a cool thing to see. Um, the fact that they both have are aware of Ridley Scott knows where he wants to go and and Bloom his name is Bloom Blumkamp. Yeah, I think he also has a, a vision of what space should look like and what it should feel like, and I think that combination would be pretty cool to to see and come come to life. Yeah, it's one of those things I'm I'm very hopeful. Yeah. But at the same time, I just, I mean, especially with like going on with COVID and that delay yeah. and everything, I just can't imagine a studio getting involved again anytime mm. soon with Alien after the underperforming of the previous film and the div- uh, divisiveness of the Prometheus and Covenant amongst fans. I mean, yeah. I can't see 20th Century Fox getting yeah. like jumping at the opportunity to reboot this and taking another gamble anytime soon, but we'll have to wait and see, unfortunately. Yeah. So in wrapping up with Covenant, I guess, what is the film that surprised you the most out of all of these? Because you hadn't seen a number of the movies in Alien, so mm-hmm. in the Alien franchise. So I'm kind of curious, which one surprised you the most, even if it was not necessarily like your favorite? I think I, I enjoyed more the third one, more than I yeah. thought it would have. I now that I think about it, I think the third one was. I think we were we we're talking about it. That was you said it was, it was more most related to the original Alien, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was. Now that I think about it, I think it's probably the most related to it, and I really enjoyed that one. Um, I was definitely not a fan of the fourth one. Just that concept of Ripley being um, relatives of Xenomorph. It's kind of yeah, weird. That their was, relationship was just that bizarre. Was super weird. But I would say definitely the third one was now that. It, I, I, it's probably one of those movies I'll definitely go back and give it another shot because originally I wasn't too crazy about it but then now you think about it it's like he kind of the director took it back to that original sense of being in a ship and being abandoned with no weapons and I kind of want to go back and refresh my memory on that but I definitely one of those movies I, the third one I'll probably rewatch absolutely because I was the same way originally when yeah. I'd seen it I was like this is kind of overly familiar and whatnot but in rewatching it especially in watching the um not the director's cut, whatever the, the special edition yes. of that. Uh, I think it's called the assembly cut maybe, but mm-hmm. um, just picking up on all the extra little details and character arcs and yeah. the world itself and how engrossing that world is and how it's not so similar to the original. It's more a new interpretation of what made the original such a standout. Mm-hmm. It definitely is one of my favorites in this entire series. That's like the underdog essentially Yeah, where it's never going to top the first two or Prometheus for me. But at the same time, when we're getting into that back end of the series, that is somewhat dubious quality in certain regards. Yeah. I think it really shines in being the most unique and having its own voice in a way that alien resurrection didn't really have its own voice. It was more just a blending of styles. Yeah. 
that while I think it it's okay, it's nothing special. It mm-hmm. capitalizes on a couple of things better in terms of the like action yeah. than some of the other ones did, but it's still too weird for me to, like you said, yeah. it's definitely that weirdo relationship with the xenomorphs. And that is also what I don't like about Covenant and that Covenant echoes that in a way where this relationship between David and uh, the, the xenomorphs, yeah. it just like doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think the third one really kind of brings in that horror feeling of the original one, which I think I like a lot. Like it really makes you feel like claustrophobic in this environment of a ship and then you're stuck with this thing. And I think it really does a good job at that, which is probably why I like it as much as I do. And like, I just really need to go and rewatch it again. Cause like, like we, while we were talking about it, I was like, originally I wasn't too crazy about it, but then thinking about it, the conversation we had about it. And it was just like, yeah, it really does bring that horror scene back into alien after yeah. it cams, uh, James Cameron's version, which is more action-based. This one really brings more of that gory horror of the original one, which I think it did a great job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've run out of movies to review that were in yeah. other than I don't, we have, you and I have reviewed AVP on another podcast and mm-hmm. I'm not going to endure uh, no, yeah. AVP Requiem again. That's a one and done for me, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I thought it would be fun if in the future I'd have you back on and we would review not a movie, but a game. Yeah. And that was the one that I mentioned earlier, Alien Isolation in that I was unaware of not only how good of a game that is, but also yeah. how true it is to the Alien universe. Yeah. And it is a fantastic continuation from the, I think I've played it for 10 hours or so at this mm-hmm. point, just continuing the lore and expanding yeah. on it in a really rich way that feels very un-video gamey. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to make up a word, it's going to be video gamey. <laughs> uh, it feels very cinematic mm-hmm. and just organic in the way that it expands on the Xenomorph lore, but also just like, the corporate side of deep space travel and all these things. And we even get into a to uh, Ripley's lineage a little bit. Yeah. The game focuses around her daughter in the years that Ripley is missing after the events of the Nostromo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, that was definitely something we should do. Think about doing and talk about it. I think it'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely. And we can kind of, it'll be a first for uh, the podcast talking about yeah. a video game, but it's very much a, terrific horror companion to the series that mm-hmm. i mean i think i've played for 10 hours i think yeah. you're pretty deep yeah, into it yourself probably. yeah that we could recommend it to people that dig alien but mm-hmm. i think it'll be fun to have a more in-depth discussion of the story elements the gameplay elements and just the world building in general so yeah, people can be on the lookout for that uh hopefully in the future but yeah i appreciate you coming on this this alien journey with me over the last six weeks yeah thanks for having me i mean it's been a fun one i have it's one of the aliens is one of those series that it's been around for so long, but I've never really gone around to watching them. And I think it's kind of cool to have, now that we have this time with COVID, to really get around and watching all these series. And uh, it's definitely one that's worth taking a look for anybody that enjoys sci-fi scary movies. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.